So the Apostle Paul calls us uh, children of light, and we're going to talk a bit more about that tonight. And so um, I'm going to read the scripture lesson just a second. Normally I start with that, but I want to give you a story. I always try to keep things current. This is two things that happened to me yesterday. And so um, I, I was sitting, uh, yes, you know, on my, Friday's my day off, and I usually you can go fishing, and I usually do yard work. So yesterday I decided to do something I never have done, actually in 11 years I haven't done this. So um, we have this big tree in front of our house, and it's just covered with moss. So all the leaves have fallen off, and so I thought this would be a great time to actually do that. So I was in there, um, and so me and Charles, my, my, our dog, um, we went out and did yard work. And so, matter of fact, I got a picture of Charles. Here's a picture of Charlie and um, our little uh, granddaughter, Marley Ray. And so she is uh, very animated. So there's Charles. So Charles and I were out, and I was doing the yard, and, and he was um, on a leash, and so he's anchored to the. Uh, 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 we have a, like a cord, and he can run around the yard. And so, what I noticed yesterday um, as I was doing my yard work, I noticed that Charlie actually has three definitive and different barks. The first bark has to do when the UPS guy comes and rings the doorbell. He goes ballistic, starts barking and, you know, and then he just, you know, and so he just, he goes crazy. The second bark is a little bit different and it's even a little bit more ratcheted up when he sees another dog walking on the street and his turf. He doesn't like that. And so he starts barking at that dog. The third bark I noticed yesterday as I was doing my yard work, all of a sudden I heard this, it's just a little bit different. It's a more humbling bark. It means he's in trouble. And he was wrapped up in all the bushes. And he was kind of, it was a yelping bark. And I, as, soon as, I, as soon as I looked up, I knew the dog was in trouble. So then I got him untangled and I put him in the house and pat him on the head and said it reassured him he was going to be okay. And so um, I, I thought it was interesting that the dog has three different barks, but he, definit- he de- has a definitive different way of communicating with me when he is in trouble. He has, I'm in trouble, Dad, bark. Later on that afternoon, Don and I went to dinner. And so we're over here. Um, we uh, were at Olive Garden. And, and we sat down, and our table is over here. And all, we walked to the side, and there's... Well, there were four kids from the village charter school. They look like maybe they're in ninth grade, tenth grade. Not that, oh, that's nice. They're, and I, I'm a, this is what I'm assuming. I'm assuming that they've probably been planning to go to um, this dinner time all week. They're all excited, right? So they're sitting there having a good time, and, and they, had, they ordered their dinners, and they were drinking their pink lemonade, and just having, and so we're just kind of observing that. And everything seemed to be going great and jolly at that table until the bill came. And evidently, amongst the four of them, no one had thought in advance that somebody had to pay for the dinner. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I realized there was some kind of trouble going on because the manager comes out. And the manager basically has to come to Jesus with the four kids and says, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, who's going to wash dishes tonight, you know? And so we were watching, and they, and they were kind of shuffling around. I don't know if they, they had thought they had a gift card that, that didn't work or what, but it, nothing was working at that table. So what I also noticed as I observed that two of them actually bailed and left, and there were uh, two left. And uh, what I noticed, the next situation was very interesting because what happens in life is so, well, even with you have a dog that's 11 years old or you've got a teenager that's 16, she started barking into her phone. 
And when she started barking to her phone and I saw her get up, and guess who she's calling? She's barking and talking to her dad. And she's basically saying to her dad, dad, come get me, come rescue me. So about 10 minutes later, true story, I see the dad come in and he's in a huff. I don't know if he's just kind of aggravated or put out. I don't know what's going on. But the first thing he says, well, the waiter says, are you paying for all the dinners? He says, I'm not paying for all those dinners. I'll pay for my daughter's dinner. So he pays for that dinner, right? And so I thought it was really interesting how those little dynamics about when you need to be rescued, who do you call? When you really need to be rescued, who are you calling out to? Let me read the scripture lesson. This is entitled for the Apostle Paul. 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. It's entitled, The Coming of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God would bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of the command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in the Christ will rise first. Then he who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. So when you're in trouble, who are you going to call out to? I love that piece of scripture tonight because it's very telling. You think about, you know, when we all need to be rescued. And we have the promise of Jesus Christ who is going to rescue us. So let me give you once again, last week I did some teaching. And so let me give you once again a little bit of a scope. So can you give me just a black board here real quick? If you just, Yeah, okay, perfect. So here's where last week we talked about the overarching theme. Ready? that we find in 1 Thessalonians. The overarching theme is all about faithfulness. Okay, this is really important to Paul. And so, once again, not only do we have faithfulness, but we have this, this image of what well, the key word is steadfast. And this is a really important word because when we think about steadfast over here, we also have this image when we think about, well, I love this word steadfast because I actually wrote down other words that remind us about Paul talking about how to continue to be faithful, and faithfulness has to do with steadfast, and even the midst of adversity, because he, the, well, the children, well, they were under such persecution, and Paul was writing back to him and saying, listen, don't give up hope. I need you to hang in there. So the words for steadfast are un, well, unwavering, or resolute, or loyal, or dedicated, or standing firm, or persistent, or unflappable, or unfaltering. These are all great words that Paul would ultimately re, what reminds them that remain steadfast in your faith. So we have this word steadfast over here. And then we also have this word when we think about, we have the word worthy, 
which is a really important word for Paul last week, worthy of God's love. And we have the word when we, uh, uh, about um, being, uh, uh, once again, about being uh, promises, or we have the, once again, we have a key word here when you think about that as well, that God continues to be faithful in his promises stuff. Don't give up hope. We have that. And we also have this word over here about the word love over here. It's a really important word. And then um, Mr. Wesley would call the word holiness. We, we, I love that also when you think about this key word, about wanting being resolute, being faithful in our love. And so we, in the middle of all this, we have, we have Jesus Christ. He is at the crossroad. And so what I thought was very interesting this week as I was thinking about this and this theme that the Apostle Paul's talking to his, his beloved church back at Thessaloniki, the Thessalonians, there's this new word that pops up. And here's the second word. So we have faithfulness as the overarching thing, but we have the word hope. This is a really important word for Paul as we find out how this whole thing's out. And the hope, so steadfast, or faithfulness is connected to steadfastness and promises and the worthiness and love and holiness. But this word hope is a really important word because it really is all connected to, as I, well, Sean and the, them all just sang. I don't know if you listened closely to the words tonight, but I love the music tonight because they all were connected to this second coming. This is all very important to Paul. So you get to the fourth chapter of Thessalonians, and what you find here is that Paul is writing to a church that is starting to question, and the question is, here's the thought, evidently somebody died. And so they're asking Paul, hey, Paul, what happens when then, you know, someone dies, what happens then? And then what happens if, what happened to all the people that died before us? Then are they, do they, do they still get to heaven, Right. And so what we have here is we, the key word for Paul, when you think about this part of the book of Thessalonians, about the word hope, is that Paul is saying, we have hope. We have hope because we believe in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again. And because of his resurrection, we have hope. Can I amen on that? Okay, so Paul is making this really clear. He says, first of all, we have this hope that nobody else, well, many people don't have. And we anchor our lives in hope. And then Paul connects this whole idea about hope to the idea of the second coming, which is really, really important. Now, we call this idea of second, uh, second coming, there's a big theological word, Paul, eschatology. Autology means study of, and eschos means the, of the end of times. And so, once again, we're looking at tonight the second coming, which I think is really interesting. Because, by the way, First Thessalonians, as I shared with you all the last two weeks, is the earliest piece of scripture that we have in the New Testament. Earliest writings. It's written around, uh, probably around 49, 50 AD, okay? Before the gospels are written. So what I really think is really important that we take note of is that in the earliest writings and the whole New Testament, the, the theme of hope and the second coming of Jesus Christ comes up. It's really, really important. And so Paul says this. He says, hey, listen. Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about people who have died so that you won't mourn like others who don't have any hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose, so we also believe that God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus. Do you hear that? 
So in other words, he's saying, listen, I understand that you could be grieving because you lost someone. Now listen, we, everybody in this room has lost somebody, okay? We all have gone through that. There's a sense of deep grief that many of us have gone through. There's been a sense of mourning. But what Paul is saying, hey, because we have our faith in Jesus Christ, it's anchored in hope that we find in the Jesus' death and resurrection, we do not have to grieve like the other people. Because we are anchored in Jesus Christ. Can we amen on that? Because our faith tells us that we have eternal hope. That's what Paul is trying to relay to his early church. He says, listen, I understand that you can grieve. And, I, and it's perfectly natural that you grieve. We all have grieved. I remember when my father died. I grieved terribly. It was just earth-shattering to me. I, I miss my father, but I have this deeper sense of my life that I knew that my father was okay, that my father was at peace. I think one thing, I made this my little note this week as I was writing the sermon, I thought there is a sense, a paradox between what I would call grief and relief. And so once again, I was, I was grieving because I lost the one I loved, and we all can relate to that, but there was a side of me that I felt a sense of relief that my father didn't have to suffer. I'm grateful for that. So when you think about this, I love this, this imagery that Paul was talking about, this sense of deep sense of, I understand you could be grieving, but we don't have to grieve like other people because we have this faith that's anchored in Jesus Christ. So the other night, I was watching um, uh, football, and um, I was watching uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and uh, they were uh, playing the Dallas Cowboys. Well, um, what I thought was really interesting the other night was um, all the hype. Because, well, can you see that picture of the guy who was playing? Tom Brady was playing, okay? So Tom Brady, and matter of fact, this is on the cover of Sports Illustrated a couple of years ago, and they call him the GOAT. And the GOAT means the greatest of all time, okay? It's an acronym, G-O-A-T. And so what I thought was very interesting about the dynamics of that particular game, and they were talking about how great Tom Brady is and how many playoff games he's already won. He's, he's already played in one more uh, of the playoff games than everybody else combined. And, and, and so what, there was this sense in that conversation, they were talking about that game and how great Tom Brady was, and they went on and on and on and on. And some of them were like said, okay, well, we believe the Cowboys are going to play win. And with some of them said, no, I can't. As long as Tom Brady's in the game, I can't go against Tom Brady, right? And so then I started thinking about, well, and what's very interesting is that Tom Brady, when it comes to playing the game of football, I would call him the X Factor. Now, some of you all may know what the X Factor is, but I actually looked up the definition of the X Factor. And the X Factor means a circumstance or a quality or a person that has a strong and unpredictable or unprecedented influence. So the people were saying that were actually the commentators who were saying, oh, we really believe the Buccaneers are going to win tonight because they got Tom Brady because he's the GOAT. And because, by the way, he's the X Factor, right? And so then I started thinking about, guess what? They still lost. They got killed. Tom Brady played terrible. Uh, and so, you know, even though he's the X Factor, even though he's the GOAT, they still lost. Then I started thinking about, you know what? Here's the interesting thing about it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, and I looked this up this week, I thought, this is really interesting. Jesus Christ truly is the X factor. Now, I don't know if you know about the original Greek, when you look at the word, the meaning of Christ. Matter of fact, can you put that symbol up of Jesus Christ? So here is the symbol of Christ in the Greek. What do you see? X. 
The word beginning of Kai, which, uh, which uh, the first word, first part in the Greek of Jesus is where uh, the word Christ is the X. And the P means, can you put that next slide up maybe if we had that about the definition? Yeah. So here's the word in the Greek. And so the word Kai, which means Christ, or the word with the X, and the P, which means Rho, which Jesus Christ is ultimately the son of the living God, right? And so what I thought was really interesting is, is that Jesus Christ truly is the greatest of all time. Can we amen on that? Of everything. And yes, I believe that. that. That is worthy of praise, right? So Jesus Christ is the greatest of all time. And Jesus Christ truly is what I would call the X factor. And so I was reflect upon that this week, and I thought about this, you know, the idea that Jesus Christ, when you think about the early church, and what is very interesting, when Paul is talking about his, this to the early Christians in the early church around 49, 50 AD, so they have these questions, you know, what happens if I, when I die? What happens when, you know, um, the people have died before me? Are they still going to go to heaven? Is there is this whole idea about the second coming? And so and Paul begins to try to lay that all out. And so we have to understand, once again, let's just lay this out, because in the early church, there was this, there's this imagery of what heaven and hell would look like. And so the early, what was very interesting when it came to the early church in the first century AD, there was a sense uh, that you could go to uh, like a utopia or go to a place that would be called uh, somewhat maybe a heaven or something along those lines, but, that, but you had to be uh, very virtuous. And, and so, I mean, it was almost like for the elite of the elite. And so there wouldn't be a whole lot of hope for you and me. So what Paul is saying, listen, there is hope for you and me. And it's the reason why we hope, they have hope for you and me, that we can go and be a part, be with Jesus in heaven is because of Jesus Christ's death and, heaven, and resurrection. So we have hope in Jesus Christ. So don't buy into the lie. Even though you've been taught this, he says, listen, ultimately, I want you to know there is hope. And so there is this sense of Sheol, or we call Hades, and this is kind of the underworld, right? This is the idea of the, the realm of the dead. So we have that part context, but then also we have to understand in first century, we had the other context, and the other context is with the, the idea of what heaven's like. And you know what heaven's like? It's like paradise. Do you remember that place and when Jesus is on the cross, Ready? And so when Jesus is on the cross and you have a thief on the left and you have a thief on the right, right? and so one of them is berating, uh, berailing Jesus and he says, listen, Jesus, and be insulting Jesus and say, hey, listen, you really, if you really are the son of God, save yourself and save us too. Ha, 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 right? And then the other guy to Jesus' left says, hey, you know what? Stop being an idiot. You're an idiot. He says, don't you see that we deserve what we're getting, but Jesus doesn't deserve this. And then Jesus says to that guy, he says, surely you will be with me in where? Paradise. So the imagery of paradise, do you really, the image of the par- imagery of paradise had to do with the Babylonian, actually, that, it's actually a Persian word. The word paradise is connected with the Persian word and had to do with the king's garden. So if you are very virtuous and you are a very righteous person, the king would invite you to come and take a tour of his garden. It was beautiful. It was, the un, it was one of those beautiful places you could ever be. And so the image of paradise, and what, what Jesus is saying ultimately here is that Jesus is saying, I am the king of the garden. I am the king of paradise. And that you are going to be with me in paradise and you're not going to be in Sheol or you're going to be in Hades of this ultimate torment. And I love that imagery. 
Jesus says, surely you will be with me in paradise. And I'm the king of the king of the, of the beautiful garden. It's perfect. You know, I don't know if you've ever been here, but um, I've got this picture of the Sistine Chapel. And so here's a, I think it's just one of the most beautiful pieces. It's one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. I actually went there as a kid, um, had the opportunity to be able to go in there. And um, you know what? I walked in there and it was one of the most overwhelming sights I've ever been in my, ever experienced in my life. And, and we got to say like 10 minutes. And I'm thinking, I only get 10 minutes in here? 10 minutes for Michelangelo's greatest masterpiece in the world? I get 10 minutes? Really? I could have stayed in there all day. What I thought was really interesting about this particular masterpiece, and can you put that up on the screen again for me if you could, please? Yeah, so what's very interesting about that is you see Jesus, and once again, you see they're all up, you have all these angels, and you have Jesus up in the heavens, and you got, they're up in clouds, right? And then you get the, it's kind of a lighter blue, and then you keep going down, darker and darker, down, 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 and then you have like this underworld, this kind of shield, this kind of hellish place. And so I just love that imagery because I think it's one of the greatest images that's ever been painted of what heaven and hell really looks like. That was really interesting is, um, is that um, at the very bottom on the right-hand side, when we were going taking that tour, there was a tour guide that pointed out a few things. And he talked about Jesus here and, and all these different people and so forth. As a matter of fact, Michelangelo actually painted his, his own face in one of the images there. And so there's a person down on the right-hand side. And evidently, there was one of these cardinals that would come in and just really torment Michelangelo. It kept giving him a hard time throughout when he would continue to pray. He'd come in every single day and continue to ask him, when you, hurry up, how long is it going to take? Uh, you, you know, and gave him a hard time. And she knew what Michelangelo did. He had a great sense of humor. He, and one of the demons on the right-hand side, he painted the picture of that guy on the demon. I thought that was really, really cool, right? And so he had this powerful image. But then you have this also image, and so Jesus talks about this, this idea of this chasm, and he talks about what heaven and hell is really like. And so, you know, my, my idea of hell would be like, and so we have this image, it could be a place of torment, it could be a, like a burning lake, it would be hell and brimstone, we could have all that. But you know what, to me, when I think about hell, even hell on earth is a separation from God. I can't imagine my life without having the presence of God in my heart and my life. And if I had to thought, think of the rest of my life, my eternal being without be, being close in the closeness of God's love and his comfort, that would be tormenting to me. So I think about my idea of what heaven and hell. I mean, you can, everybody have their own images of what heaven and hell could look like or their, the image in their heart. But I think to me, it's a separation of God. And so when I thought, once again, we have Jesus's own words when he talks about heaven and hell. And he gives this great parable, the story about Lazarus and the rich man, right? So we have Lazarus who's there. And matter of fact, I love this, this 15, 15th century um, Italian uh, painter painted this picture. And so here's a picture of the, um, the uh, Lazarus. And then you have the rich guy and this kind of beautiful, like in his estate. And you have this images. And Jesus talked about that, that the, he was so poor and he had the dogs who come and lick the, his wounds. And that's, that's a depiction that we have in this image. And so all of a sudden, as Jesus uh, tells the story, and he says, listen, then all of a sudden, the tide turns. They both die. 
And so the rich man ends up in heaven. I mean, excuse me, the poor man, Lazarus, ends up in heaven, and the rich guy ends up in Hades. And there's this chasm, and but, there, you, but the two can see each other. As Jesus tells this very powerful story, and the the one, the the rich guy, he's being tormented in hell, and so all of a sudden Lazarus is living the good life, right? And so it's a very powerful image between what heaven looks like and what hell looks like, and there's this big chasm between the two. And so Jesus makes it very clear that there's a, this whole idea of heaven and hell is a very real place. And we have these great images here that we find. And so what I really think is really important for us to understand when we think about our theology, about understanding our relationship with Jesus Christ, and I want us to be really clear about this when you think about going to heaven or going to hell. You ready? I want us to understand that I truly believe that God does not send people to hell. I believe that we have this, what we call the doctrine of free will, and we choose how we want to be able to, do we want to choose to be able to leave in Jesus Christ and his saving love They really truly lived and he truly died and he rose from the dead and he's given us hope today? Or we can choose to reject that, right? And so once again, it's all about how, what we truly believe in our heart. So listen, if we choose to reject God, God honors that. But God also is rejoicing when we choose to accept him and love him and accept him. And what I, another image I love about this, the idea is when we look at the Lord's Prayer and we just prayed it just a few minutes ago, Donna prayed for us, and thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in what? In heaven. In other words, what Jesus is talking about, his goal, his hope for all of us is that we could follow the example. And Jesus' example is to love just as I have taught you to love. And so the idea that, that we can have heaven on earth has to do with being able to be loved and have a sense of righteousness and a sense of hope and a sense of caring and compassion and empathy and love and not have all the sinfulness that just comes inking out of our lives. And so listen, once again, you, know what, you want to just see that you know, heaven is not here on earth? You just watch the six o'clock news, right? Just keep ticking, 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 or just look at all the stuff. If you have, uh, you see on the internet, I get the Yahoo, and all of a sudden you can see all the, the terrible stuff that's going on in the world once again. And we see, you know, heaven is not on earth. But then all of a sudden there are times in which we see glimpses of that. There are times in which we see the goodness to the hearts of people, like, for example, this afternoon at 2 o'clock, my friend Carol Stramliello handed some brand new keys to a, to a brand new house to a family that has not had a home for years. To me, that is a sense of what heaven on earth is like. When people come together and they care for each other and they love each other, this is what Jesus is talking about. Now, we also know when we think about the idea of the second coming, we have the idea of hope. I, I love this imagery. And we have the gift of the resurrection, and we have hope in that. But then Jesus goes on, and he's very clear about the second coming. Jesus talks about that. Paul talks about that, the idea of the second coming. And the second coming, once again, it has to do with the, with the, the Greek word is parousia. And the word parousia, which means second or the second coming, of which has, has everything everything to do with this. And I thought this is really powerful. The, the Greek word, aparousia, means second coming. The Latin word, we get the word, derivative word of the Adventus. And Adventus is connected with the word Advent. And we just came through Advent, which means the coming of the Lord. And the parousia means this. There were times when the Roman emperor would come back. And when the Roman emperor would come back and or maybe come back, he'd been away and then he would come back, they would call that the parousia. 
and people would come and there'd be this great big celebration that the, the, the king would be coming back and be ushered in and there's all this kind of this sense of uh, uh, excitement the emperor was back and so we have this imagery when Jesus talks about the second coming it's connected to the word parousia the coming of the Lord and the reason why we believe in the parousia and the reason why we believe in the second coming because Jesus said it Jesus said in Matthew, the 16th chapter, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. And so we have this great imagery. And so Jesus tells us, and he says, listen, I want you to know. And we talked about, he talked also about the times of tribulation. And when we think about the times of tribulation, listen, Jesus made it very, very clear. You don't know when. Uh, we don't know when. Jesus made that very clear. But he also talked, there's a sense of tribulation. There'd be times in which things would uh, look like, um, that would be at times that would usher into the second coming. For example, Jesus even predicted this. Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple that came in 70 AD, but Jesus talked about it 40 years before. And so the many of the people thought, okay, you know, that's never gonna happen. Jesus talked about destroying the temple, but you know, and there's no way that would happen. Well, guess what, it happened right? So many people thought, you know, this is a part of the whole idea of the tribulation. People, Jesus talked about tribulation. There'd be signs in which they might, would be able to come and they'd be able to be, to usher in the time of the second coming. Jesus also talked about, once again, and this is really, really, Jesus says, we don't know. You don't know when. You don't know when I'm coming back, but Jesus says, I am coming back. Let's be really clear about that. So it could be 15 minutes from now. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be a thousand years from now. We don't know. But we do know this. You ready? Jesus made it very, very clear. You ready? We need to be prepared. Can I be a minute on that? Did you hear that? This is what Jesus said. So what's very interesting, Jesus in the Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus makes it very, very clear. He talks about the second coming and he talks about the times in which be ushered in. And he also makes it very clear and he gives us three little parables. And I think they're really powerful. And the three parables are the parable of the 10 bridesmaids. Are you prepared? They got oil in their lamps. Some of them don't have oil in their lamps. And, you know, and so when it came time for them to get to the, to the party and to get to the wedding, when the, the, when the bride came, came and they came knocking on the door, they, I don't know you. It's too late. You're not prepared. Jesus gives us that parable. And the next parable, right after that, he gives us the parable of the talents. He gives one guy five talents. gives a guy two talents. He gives one guy one talent. The guy has five, he makes 10. The guy has two, makes four. And one, what's he do with it? Bears it. There's accounting. Jesus says there's accounting. So the guy, the, the master comes back and says, hey, how'd you do with, what'd you do with the talent I gave you? Oh, I made, I made 10. Wow, well done, my good and faithful servant. What'd you do with the two? Well, I made four. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Oh, master, I dug a hole. I put it in the ground. I was afraid. And I don't even remember the outcome of that, but it didn't turn out too well. Jesus says you need to be prepared. And then Jesus, the third parable, had everything to do with what they call the parable of the separation of the nations. And he, we have the separation of the sheep and the goats. Separates them, the sheep and the goats. And so once again, all three of these parables have everything to do with are you being, are you truly being prepared? 
So we have this image, and Paul talks about this. He says, hey, and he, there's this image that, are, are you really ready? Are, and there's a sense of, a deeper sense, and Paul talks about that there's um, a, like a welcoming party. And Paul says, listen, you don't have to worry about the, your, the saints that have gone before us because they've already gone there. And you're going to be, once when you die, they're going to be already there and they're going to welcome you. This is Paul's words. By the way, what's very interesting, as I shared with you all before, 1 Thessalonians is the early piece, earliest piece of scripture that we have in the New Testament. He makes it very clear about the second coming. And not only does he make it very clear about the second coming, but Paul probably gives us more detail about the second coming than any other person. Paul. This is what Paul says. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise at first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Can amen on that? I love that. So Jesus talks about this, and Paul talks about this, this idea that the great cloud, and I love this image of the clouds. As a matter of fact, in the first century, and the Greek, part of the Greek history had to do with this idea of, the, of the God's glory caught up in the clouds. And so you know what I love? One of the things I, I love about um, when I fly is when you get above the clouds, it's so peaceful. It's just beautiful. You watch the sunset in the west, and you get above, and you're flying into it. It's just a gorgeous, beautiful, it's a, that's a peaceful thing. And so I love this image that we find here, and the idea of God being up in the clouds, and Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel, where does he put Jesus? He puts him up in the clouds. And someday there's this sense of this great cloud, this idea of God's glory. We're all caught up in this image. What a beautiful image that Paul gives us of the glory and the countenance of Almighty God. What's also very interesting in the Greek we get the word rapture or raptus, which means to be caught up in the clouds. And then we find this great image here. And I love, once again, what idea of flying. And I did my research this last week, and I found this person by the name of Albert Brumbley. And Albert Brumbley was a really great guy because he wrote one of my favorite old hymns. And you all might be familiar with it. It's entitled, I'll Fly Away. Can you on that? Some glad morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away. To that home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. Someday, you know, isn't that great? So the idea, when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. You know when Albert wrote this? You know why he wrote this? He was picking cotton. In, 19, in the early 1900s. And he had this imagery that he didn't want to pick cotton the rest of his life. So he's out there. Can you imagine picking cotton? Picking cotton is not an easy thing to do. Picking cotton is hot in Oklahoma. And he had this imagery that someday that he would not have to pick cotton anymore. And he had this imagery as he's out there picking cotton, someday he just wished he could just fly away. And he took that imagery and he wrote it into one of the most beautiful hymns, about the beauty that we have in the gift of the resurrection and the second coming, I'll fly away. And now you know, as Paul Hart would say, the rest of the story, right? 
So we have this imagery. You have this great imagery of the clouds. We have this great imagery of, of flying away. You have this great imagery of, uh, once again, of what we find over and over again. And what I, what I love what Paul talks about and Jesus talks about, he says, listen, once again, it goes to this whole theme about the second coming that we need to be prepared. And he's both Jesus and the apostle Paul talk about this. And I thought this is great. He talks about the thief that comes in the night. Jesus says, hey, listen, in the gospel of Matthew 24 and 25, he says, listen, you need to be prepared because the thief comes in the night. Paul takes that same image and this is what he says. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come, will come like a thief in the night, 1 Thessalonians. Then he goes on and says, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief you are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Glory, hallelujah. The Apostle Paul. She, Paul calls us children of the light. And as children of the light, we continue to live in this beautiful idea that God has given us hope. And God has given us hope because he sent us his only begotten son. And his only begotten son has given us this wonderful gift that he was willing to die and rise again. Die on an old rugged cross for our redemption, my redemption. You know why? Because we need to be rescued. Can I amen on that? We need to be rescued. And so the beautiful thing, this imagery that Jesus, once again, that reinforcing what Paul is talking about and what Jesus is talking about, we need to be prepared. Because you just never know. So, you know, once again, I, I'll, I'll close with this thought tonight. And when I, I love this because, you know, when you look back at history, and I want you to understand this is really, really important, is that we put it in perspective, we don't know when he's coming. And we don't know if we can go out here, by the way, you know, we don't know when we might breathe our last breath. We just don't know that. So here's the beautiful thing. Here's a really powerful thing is that what image, the, the image that Paul's given to us, the image that Jesus is talking to us about, it's so important because once again, you could go back and we can look back at the trials and tribulations. Matter of fact, Paul, Jesus talked about that. He says, 78, he says, listen, the destruction of the temple is coming. Nobody believed him, but it did come. But you can look back at almost any part, any era and within the history of the last 2,000 years ago, you know, it could have been then, it could have been then, it could have been then, it could have been then. You know, we can go back and look at our lives. I remember as a boy in 1973, and I'll tell you, this is the truth. In 1973, I thought the world was coming in. The reason why I thought the end was coming in, world coming in is because there was a comet that was coming. It's called Kahootek. And they made this big, uh, big deal about it. And it was like this unbelievable thing. And it was like, it was right around Christmas time. It was going to be a superstar. And they made it, and the press got a hold of it. And guess what? Nothing happened. It was a big letdown. Right? And then we had Y2K, right? Everybody thought, well, the end world's coming to an end because everything's going to be in, uh, in, uh, uh, crazy because the, all the computers are going to go crazy. Guess what? Didn't happen, right? I tell you, when I thought the world might be coming in, 9 11. I remember that night. I remember going to bed. I remember how quiet it was because there was no planes flying. And I thought, wow, that's something different. And I remember laying my head on the pillow that night and I think, Lord, is this it? That wasn't it. Back in the early 1930s, my grandmother um, and my daddy and his three siblings and my granddaddy 
in Pusey Ridge, Kentucky, the Northern Lights came. And my grandmother had convinced everybody in Pusey Ridge that the world was coming to end that night. We're still here. We're still here. So what's Jesus wants to know tonight? What's the Apostle Paul want us to know tonight? We are to live as children of light. To live a life that, once again, to... To live this life in which Christ has called us to do, to live a life that's worthy, to live a life that's holy, to live a life that Christ, to live a life that is pleasing to him, to live a life that is worthy of him, to live a life that is steadfast in faith, to live a life that is selfless in our love, to live a life that's full of faith and full of love. This is the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the good news. Jesus is always calling your name. Because let me tell you something of experience. One morning I got up. I was just going fishing. I got run over by a truck. Let me tell you something. When I got in that car that morning, I had no idea. Life can change just like that. It taught me a, a few simple things. It taught me, once again, never take life for granted. Life is precious. It, it taught me to be prepared. Because let me tell you something. As I look back at that point in my life, I don't know just how prepared I was. I don't know if I was prepared to die or not. But I am now. I tell you that straight up. After you go through something like that. So let me ask you something. Are you really prepared? Are you really prepared? You can't be. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's about believing in him. And he's calling your name tonight. You know why? Because he loves you. You know why? Because he came to rescue you.